What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. What's up, everyone? It's John. I just wanted to thank you guys for being so awesome. We just found out that we are nominated again for the podcast awards. You can head over to www.podcastawards.com. Come November 1st, you can vote daily. It would be absolutely amazing if you guys would vote for us in the education section. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the show. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Stem. And I'm John Rojas. First, just want to start this one off. Thanks to everybody. Thanks for hitting that subscribe button, tuning in and listening to us. Oh, by the time this episode airs, we will know if we are nominated for the podcast awards. Yeah, they're actually doing the reading live. So if this goes out before 9 p.m. tonight, Which it won't. who knows? Which Possibly. It won't. No chance. Who knows? Podcastawards.com. You can head over there and see if we were nominated in the education section. If we were, figure out how to vote and do it daily because it would be killer to win. But, anyways, if not, then vote more next year. I don't know. Let's dive in. This week, we talked to producer, writer, director, Olivia Tagliaferri. Did I, I pronounce that right, right, John? As far as I know, man, that's spot on. I'm pretty sure on. you know. But, and we cover a really important topic, one that I'm surprised we haven't talked about much, given it's something that we have grown up with. I mean, it's been a long time since, in our generation at least, 
we've been at war. Yeah, I mean, 2001. So, yeah, you and, know, most our adult life. Prior to that, you had Iraq and all that. So, we're talking to Olivia about the book she wrote called Beyond the Wall, The Journey Home, as well as the documentary she filmed, Beyond the Wall, Homeless Zone. And in this episode, as you'll hear, Olivia is a storyteller. Her passion really comes through. She talks about post-traumatic stress disorder that is really taking its toll on our military, our veterans, young and old, from this war all the way back to Vietnam War. And we're really starting to understand that better now that we have the new brain science, as well as the homeless epidemic we are facing amongst veterans. One in four homeless Americans are veterans. That's just crazy statistic. That's crazy. Think about it. And I'm glad that we can shed a little light and hopefully let people know what's going on and just to understand this a little better. It was definitely a learning experience for us. So we're going to go ahead and turn it over to Olivia Tagliaferri and talk about Beyond the Wall, the journey home. Thanks so much again for being on. I really wanted to start off, it was interesting as I was reading through your bio, I noticed that you went to school and studied history and you were, you've always been interested in kind of the arts, writing, music, but you went into IT and I wanted to know, as we've talked about this on the, the podcast a lot, what kind of prompted that shift into you know corporate America as opposed to, I'm going to go into the things I've been doing. Fear. Yeah, you know, when you're, um, I was 21, 22, and I knew that I, I knew that I was a writer. I knew that I was a storyteller. I've known that since I was seven years old. Um, I knew it again at 21 when I had an epiphany that I just, I had to follow this. Yet at the same time, at that point, I didn't have, I didn't have enough of my core that was, how do I say this? I didn't have enough of my core that was of my own making. If you know what I mean, a lot of other people, i.e. my family, my friends, you know, they didn't understand what it was that I really wanted to do. They didn't understand, uh, well, how does one go about just being a writer? Um, what does a writer really do? How does a writer make a living? How does a writer, you know, uh, get started? And so, and maybe they didn't really say that to me, but I projected that uh, onto myself. And so really, I had two resumes ready uh, when I graduated college. One was for writing, and the other was for sales. I had uh, just kind of earned a living while I was in college in the summertime selling credit cards for MBNA America. Mm. They were college affinity cards, and I had done well with them. And so when I graduated college, I remember I talked to a friend of mine, and I wanted to move to the D.C. area. I knew that. Uh, and I talked to a friend of mine. He said, Olivia, he said, you've got three options, really. He said, one, you could follow your dream. You could follow this and, and be a writer. Uh, and you'd be happy, but you wouldn't make a lot of money. Or you could work for the government and you would be stressed and you wouldn't make a lot of money. Or, <laughs> yes. Or you could go into sales and there's a booming IT economy here right now. You could go into sales for the IT, you know, con- uh, with an IT company and you would be stressed, but you'd make a lot of money. And I thought to myself, why don't I do option C so that I can build a nest egg so that eventually uh, I can do option one? Right. And that's kind of what happened, but in a very odd to sweat. No, I think that's a lot of people. I mean, that was definitely the approach I took. It was kind of the approach John took. I think it's, it's pretty common. But one thing that people don't ask a lot is if you could go back and change it, would you? Because I always wonder if it might not get you to where you are today. 
Absolutely not. And and I learned so much skill, so many skills in my skill set. Um, you know, what I learned working with I and, and the IT um, was just business development, um, marketing, product, uh, product development, um, you know, just also just that, how do I say this? Just how it takes to make something and take it from point A to point B. You know what I mean? I knew that I had the skill set to, to tell a story, but I didn't really know how to put it forth into the world. And so I learned that skill set um, while I was working in the in uh, in the economy that I was, um, it was a small company called Savvis Communications. And you know, what the other the other part of that was that the people that I met there, you know, I wouldn't trade that for the world. I, right. I had some really great friends, um, still friends with to this day. Um, but the experiences really taught me things that I needed to know when I did go off on my own. I know that kind of what got you into writing the book that you wrote and, you know, the documentary, one of the documentaries you did, you were prompted by a trip to Walter Reed. And I was hoping you could walk us through that story for us. Sure. And I'll, I'll back up just a little bit because there is a transition from when I left the uh, the company and I left the IT world and left the corporate world. I basically had a crisis, uh, a quarter life crisis when I was 24, 25. And I knew that I was not doing what I was meant to do with my life. And so it took two years after that for me to actually have that confidence to go forth and really do and be what I wanted to be uh, and do with my life what I wanted to do. And so I left the company to work for a small video um, production company that was based in Falls Church at the time. And one, one client that I had in IT I knew was doing a lot of video um, projects, a lot of documentary style projects. And one of their main clients was the USO. And so I called him and I said, Mark, I said, listen, I'm going to be uh, working for this new team or the new company. And they're really talented. Why don't you give us a shot? And he said, all right, Olivia, I'll, uh, I'll give you guys a shot. I need you to match my price that I, you know, get from other people. I said, not a problem. I uh, said, all right, I need you to show up, show up to Walter Reed and I need you to have a three man ENG crew. I had no idea what this, te- you know, this terminology <laughs> meant at the time. I'm just writing down these notes. I'm saying, okay, great, Mark, no problem. We'll be there, you know, nine o'clock next Friday. Walter Reed got it, and so I went into the mode of I've got to get my logistics, I've got to get my crew, I've got to get my equipment, I got to make sure that everybody, you know, knows where to go. We've got to get through the security. At this point in time, the war had already started. And so, you know, the military bases operated in a way different mode while they're while we're in a conflict than during peacetime. And so I was really consumed with these details because this was my first job. This was my first production. I was going to be a producer for the first time. And where this comes into play is that I was emotionally and mentally unprepared to walk into that hospital. When I was 27 years old, the war had been going on for a few months. It was August of 2003. Shock and awe was literally just wearing off. And the reality of we're in this for the long haul was starting to dawn across the country. And that's when I walked down the hallway of Walter Reed. And this was the old building. This was on the old campus on Georgia Avenue in Washington, D.C. And I saw and I met and I heard things that I cannot unsee, unmeet, or unhear. Mm -hmm. And that became the foundation for saying, all right, I need to tell these stories. I need to tell the stories of these men and women that are here at this hospital. And it was kind of fortuitous that you had this background as a storyteller because oftentimes I think people, if they do get the chance to go somewhere like Walter Reed 
or they know somebody that has been, you know, overseas at war or something like that. They they have these incredible and vivid emotional tales, but not everyone can relay those as well as you have been able to. I think that's that's certainly part of it. I also think at the time too, people didn't have the context. Uh, for example, the the Vietnam veteran that I met a few months later that formed the basis of the Vietnam character that I wrote about in the book, he was really only able to comprehend a lot of what he went through later on in life. Meanwhile, his warriorship was from age 19 to age 20. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the people that I met um, that day and, and in that time frame, I, I, I want to say that um, they were too in it to be able to be objective to what it was that they were actually going through. Uh, when I was writing the book three years later, uh, and it was a three-year process of writing it, I had to rely a lot on blogs. Um, and back then, IAVA, which is now an advocacy group for the Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans, back then it was literally a blog where people overseas, people in theater, uh, as well as people that had come home from deployment, they were writing about their experiences. And they really, at that point, had started to 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 give and paint that picture of what wartime was like uh, for this generation. Many of them had already gone on that second deployment, um, which, you know, that's the stark contrast. That's the stark difference between this war and any other wars, the number of deployments and the same people that are doing those deployments over and over. Okay, so actually, let's talk about that. As you went through, and for, for those that don't know or haven't seen the post that we put on the website, the book is Beyond the Wall, The Journey Home. And did it involve, was it mostly based around interviews or was it a gathering of all the intelligence about, you know, veterans and what they're dealing with? It was really a collation. I met with the Vietnam veteran. I met uh, actually two, about two months after the Walter Reed experience. I was at a business meeting, and I had no idea that the gentleman that we were meeting with was a Vietnam veteran. And my business partner at the time uh, tried to make a compliment saying, hey, buddy, I had no idea that you were in Vietnam, let alone had three proper hearts. And he meant it to, as like a compliment, like you look great for your age. You, you look fit. I had no idea that you were even old enough type of thing. But the, the, the moment that the word Vietnam left his mouth and entered the air, this veteran's face just changed. I mean, literally, it was like there was something that had happened internally, and you could see it on the external level. And there was a silence. Uh, There was three other people at the table, and nobody knew what to say or do at this point in time because literally we all just lowered our forks. We were no longer eating. And all of a sudden this veteran said, I was 19 years old, and it was 1967. I was there for nine months. And in that nine-month period of time, I lost my best friend and every former sense of self that I ever had. Wow. And I, yeah, I mean, it was really powerful. And I remember everybody just kind of sat back. And as we were letting that sink in, I remember thinking in my head, wow, nine months, that's the same amount of time it takes a woman to give birth to a child. I bet that's what it was like. Now, I've never been to war. I have no idea what it's like. I can only imagine that being in the womb of war and coming home must feel on some level like you're being born again. There's, there's, there's something that's being formed. You're, 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 you're reborn as a warrior, and now you're coming home that warrior. And all of a sudden, I realized that I was speaking this out loud. 
you know what I mean? My thought process had, had, had been really this external thought process. And when I realized that I was saying this out loud and everybody was kind of looking at me like, oh, what are you saying? What are you, you know, you don't break the silence. And all of a sudden this veteran looked at me and he zeroed in in my eyes. We locked eyes and he said, that's exactly what it was like. Mm. Except this time I wasn't born with my innocence. I was born without it. And so, you know, at that point I said, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just that I'm a writer. And if I were to write about what you just said, I wouldn't write about the, the uh, battle of all battles. I wouldn't write about the hero of all heroes. I would write about the 19-year-old man or woman that goes into war and what that experience is like and what the experience is like when you come home. And so uh, about a week, not even a week later, I got a phone call from him. And he said, I can't stop thinking about what you said. I've never shared with my, my story with anybody, uh, but I just found out that my son, who's a junior in high school, wants to join the Marines when he graduates. And I want him to know who I am because he has no idea who I am or why I am the way I am. And I want him to know. And so I met with him every weekend for three months. I, I can't tell you, I mean, how many hours of interviews, probably close to 40 to 50. And... That's when I literally started writing the story. It was first a, a screenplay. I first started writing it as a movie called The Hill of Angels, which was the nickname for a, uh, a hill in Vietnam. It was actually on the DMZ. It was a place called Contian. It was a fire base in Contian, or I mean in uh, uh, the DMZ of Vietnam, that the Marines had been instructed to hold. And what was historical about it is that they literally positioned the Marines, and I believe there was a couple of uh, units of the Army as well, but they weren't allowed to go into North Vietnam to actually go after the enemy. They just had to protect the South Vietnamese from the infiltration from the North. And so they were literally like these sitting ducks on this hill where they could only fire back when they were fired upon, but they could never really go into the offensive. They could never really go into, you know, routing out the enemy. And so they took such heavy casualties. Uh, it was September of 1967 uh, that was very, um, I mean, just hellacious from all the reporting um, and all the stories of, of the men that were there that shared that with me. And so, yeah, that was, it was, it was an experience. But I, his story was really the basis of the Vietnam veteran story. And the book is about this Vietnam veteran that goes to Walter Reed to mentor a wounded Iraq War veteran. And he's doing this because he does not want the Iraq War veteran and just the generation of Iraq War uh, veterans to make the same mistakes that he did. And the mistakes that he had made was basically pushing his family and his friends away. I literally, as I was listening, kind of got lost in the story because it's something you can visualize. You end up, I mean, obviously I can't experience it, but I really was just, it was playing in my mind. So I can imagine as you sat down with him, for all these hours, it, it did the same to you, and I started to get goosebumps. How willing was this veteran to open up? I mean, I know from the people I know or from what I've heard or read, it's usually a pretty difficult thing to recount. So I was just wondering if he kind of was able to open up to you. He was, and I think it was because he had heard my approach to this and also that Right off the bat, when he opened his mouth and he talked about being 19 and being, you know, overseas for that nine-month period of time, I think he understood that I was aware 
how do I say this, that I had the compassion, but I also had the intuition to go there with him and to understand what it was that he was really saying. And so when we met and we would meet every single weekend, it would be for four, sometimes five, sometimes six hours at a time that we would, we would do these interviews. Um, and I didn't have an agenda. And so I think that helped build that bond of trust that we had where he literally felt safe to go back into those recesses of memory that he had literally not accessed for almost 40 years. But at the same time, as he was doing it, more and more was coming up. The stories of Harry, his best friend, uh, the one who died, another man named Danny who had died in his arms a few months later. I mean, his, these stories that had been buried, buried in his mind as well as in his heart. He was a man that had had physical uh, problems later on in life. Uh, he had heart problems. And he knew intuitively that this was because he had bottled things up bottled up a lot of his emotions, mm -hmm. he felt like a pressure cooker, you know, that it could explode at any minute. He was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I want to say in the, either the late 70s or the early 80s, right after PTSD was actually formalized as an actual mental health issue uh, in the DSM. And so, but at the same time, he, was, he didn't trust the VA enough to go and seek treatment there. He didn't want to take medicine. He didn't want to be doped up, as he called it. And so he started an informal group of veterans. They would meet on Sunday afternoons. I believe it was an IHOP. Mm -hmm. Maybe not an IHOP. It was, it was some sort of chain where you could literally just sit there and drink coffee all day and all night mm -hmm. and, and talk. And so they became each other's peer group. And that is really how he treated him, his, his own stress. The other way he did it was through work. He overworked. He became a workaholic. And he did that to isolate himself. He also did that to numb his mind so it wouldn't go back into some of those places. Ironically, the, the name of the book, Beyond the Wall, The Journey Home, it was when I wrote it as a book, I actually first named it Still the Monkey, What Happens to Warriors After War. And it was based on the Buddhist philosophy that if your mind, well, your mind is like a monkey, they, they, that's the allegory that they come or that they give you. Uh, but that if it's not still, if it's not in the present moment, it will swing back to the branch of the past or swing too far to the branch of the future to ever let the stillness and the presence just, you know, be your experience. And so when I was meeting with this veteran, I realized he had lived a life for 40 years where he was constantly living in the past to where his ghosts of Vietnam were, or he was constantly going to the future, which was fueled by the question, when am I going to feel normal again? Now, when he talked to you about these things, and I'm assuming, obviously, he knew he had PTSD. Did he talk to you about how that affected him throughout life? I mean, literally the for for those that don't know or or haven't you know met people that have it or I, I'm not too familiar with it, so it's more of a as a lesson almost what that actually means and what it encompasses. I'll, I'll share with you a story. Uh, right right after I wrote the book, I was uh, speaking with a fireman uh, who had responded to nine eleven down here at the Pentagon, and when he knew about the book that I wrote and the content, he pulled me to the side uh, one evening and he started sharing with me one of his own fears. And he had witnessed some of his own men um, having problems, having, having um, to take some time 
some leave of absence. And he said, you know, I see so much. I saw so much that day on 9-11, but I just see so much um, as part of my job. Now, I'm trained to go into these situations when the alarm goes off, there's a switch that turns on. And I go into my mode that I was trained to go into. You know, you were responders. We respond. We rescue. We save. And so you see things and you hear things that are just absolutely hellacious. And he said, you know, I don't really know what PTSD is, but I can only think of it as being something that I'll call the switch. And he said, and that's if, what if I can't turn my switch on? What if I can't do what I'm trained to do because I'm suffering from something that I saw or that I did? He said, or worse, what if I can't turn it off? What if it's on automatic pilot? And so when I tell that story, I tell people that's what PTSD really is. It is a mechanism of your mind to basically help process things that you saw or things that you did or things that you heard, basically experiences that were so abnormal that this is your mind's normal way of processing and dealing with it. And it's painful to relive it. Uh, but for those that are able to tap into therapy or to groups to help them do that in a safe zone, a safe way, that's how they're able to transform it into a healing. And so, you know, a lot of times we hear on the news, a veteran with post-traumatic stress disorder uh, had done something, you know, there was some sort of violent act. That's not PTSD in, of a, in and of itself. PTSD is something that people are managing. It's, it's, it's a reaction of the mind. And there's a lot of other things going on, um, you know, for, for people that I think are, I'll call them the newsmakers. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are taking medicines, not just for the PTSD, but for a lot of other things as well. Um, for me, I just don't know how that reacts if, if somebody was to drink alcohol you know, there's a lot of other things that go into the mix when we hear about veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder and in negative light. For me, I've met so many people that have it that you would never know, ever know. They're functioning, uh, working, um, patriotic Americans that basically are dealing with nightmares, dealing with survivor's guilt, uh, dealing with relationships that are in the process of being mended because for whatever reason they have to keep them at an arm's length away for, for that process of healing to begin. That's a great uh, way of putting it. And I appreciate that. I wanted to kind of move on to another thing that I know you've done that I thought was extremely interesting, which is the documentary, which is beyond the wall homeless zone. Mm -hmm. And it talks a lot about, you know, the nation's problem of, I think, is it one in four, homeless Americans are veterans? Is that the yes. right statistic? What's crazy to me is that's not, that statistic doesn't seem too shocking, but I always wonder when I see, I mean, it doesn't seem shocking because I've heard it before, not because it's okay. But when I see homeless people on the street, they say, you know, veteran, please help. Or this, I always, I don't want to give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't think I'm in my mind. I'm like, Oh, they're probably not a veteran. They're just using that because they need money and whatever. But what your documentary kind of opened my eyes to is this is true. This is a real problem. These people are out there and this is the best that we can do for them is, is leave them on the streets. It doesn't make sense. 
No, it doesn't. It doesn't in a lot of ways, mostly because veterans do really well. Um, you know, after their service, they have high ownership, home ownership. Previous to this generation, um, they did well with careers. I think that right now we're in such an economy, uh, you know, as well as I, I don't know why um, a lot of our veterans are having such a hard time finding employment other than the fact that is is everybody having a hard time finding an employment? Um, but the reality of the situation is this, is that I wanted to do a story after after I learned about uh, post-combat issues, I wanted to ask the question, what happens to somebody if they don't have a support network? What happens to somebody if they fall through the cracks? What if they damage their support network to the point where they don't really have it, you know, or, or that bridge is very burned and, and they can't cross it? So that's when I really learned about the homelessness situation. And it was funny because I think it, it was 2008. Uh, it was the presidential elections and John Edwards, the senator that was, you know, from North Carolina that had the nice hair was talking about the haves and the have nots. And I remember he was on the Bill O'Reilly show, I believe, or maybe Bill O'Reilly did a show about it, but he was basically the, one of the first people that had, uh, started publicizing the findings of a study that one in four homeless persons is a veteran. And Bill O'Reilly was basically like, oh, just if there's anybody that's on a bridge that's a real veteran, just have them call me, was more or less what he was saying. And I oh, thought wow. to myself, what a stupid way to use your platform. You know, you reach so many people. Why don't you actually find out why they're homeless, how they became homeless, what is available to them in terms of resources, and who's out there helping them? And then wrap that all up and tell us, as an American, what we can do to help you know, somebody who's on the streets or help prevent somebody from becoming homeless in the first place. That's what I wanted to know. And so that's what I went out with the film crew. When I say a film crew, they were students. I hired student filmmakers that I had mentored for the uh, two years at West Potomac Academy. I'm a, uh, a mentor there for the videography students. And I took them to the streets. And I took them to the shelters in D.C. And we actually met with veterans who were there. Ironically enough, the two gentlemen that we met with, uh, one was running a, a homeless shelter. It was a faith-based homeless shelter. It was a sp you know spiritual uh, Christianity-based uh, center. He was a Vietnam veteran himself. He had also struggled after combat, and he was at that point now a preacher, a pastor, after having been a consultant for many, many years, he decided that this is this was his calling, and he wanted to help his fellow veterans, and he wanted to help them get, the, get off the streets. Um, the VA at that point was very helpful um, in introducing me to two Iraq War veterans that had gone through their homeless program. Uh, one was a man named Paul, and the other was a woman named Natalia. And Paul basically had undiagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder that he was treating. He was self-medicating himself with alcohol. And he had abused his relationships and he had abused his credit card. And he was literally living in his, his car at that point when he called his mom and said, Mom, I, I need help. I'm ready for help. And she got him into the VA program and they were able to treat the substance abuse and they were also able to treat his PTSD. And at the same time, they were able to get him into a uh, work therapy program where he was working at, at the same time that he was also receiving therapy, and he was saving money from that program to where he could later on 
put that money into a place um, where he was renting. And so that's that's one of their ways, you know, that they do help veterans is this multi-pronged approach. Most people that are, are homeless, 70% of them are dealing with either a substance abuse issue or a mental health issue or the combination of both. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it is hard to make that call in terms of is this person really who they say they are? Because I've experienced some some instances where they're not. It, it taps right into that fear that you had had, um, had shared. For me, what I learned, and I learned this from Jim Street. Uh, Jim is a Vietnam veteran who for many years worked for the VA homeless program, the homeless outreach program, and he would literally go to the parks and he'd go to the soup kitchens and all the shelters and he would meet everybody who was homeless and he'd give them all his card. And he'd say, if you know any veterans or if you're a veteran, give me a call and we'll, we'll give you some help. He wanted to help everybody, but he was really, um, you know, his, his job was to help get the veterans off the street. But I shadowed him. I followed him. And I remember I asked him, I said, Jim, you know, I've always given money when I can to somebody that I think legitimately needs it and would legitimately put it to good use. Or I'll go buy somebody a sandwich or, you know, just pick up something that, that um, you know, if they're at a store and I, I will buy them something. He said, Olivia, please don't do that. And I said, why? I said, you know, I, I, isn't that being, that being a good Samaritan? And he said, you don't understand that what you're doing by giving them money is you're enabling them to survive on the street for one more day. And I'm trying to get them off. You mentioned that, you know, there, there's the stories of people that, that realize that they need help and ask for help. And then you've got a good percentage of people that either have substance abuse disorders or, or mental disorders what did you find was the reason that these other folks weren't asking for help? Because I'd like to think that if I came on hard times, I have a great you know, network of friends and family that each one of those would be an avenue of, of help for me. What did you find with these folks that didn't go or either were rejected by friends and family? What was the reason behind all of that? With some of the veterans that I, that I um, interviewed, they were the ones that were doing the rejecting. Okay. They didn't... They didn't feel understood and or they just needed to be by themselves, as well as the fact that they had learned how to survive. They've learned how to survive in certain situations, I mean, in all situations. So being homeless is no big deal sometimes mm. from that perspective. You know, there's survivor lists. They're warriors. They have this training uh, to be able to make do. And so some people, that is their way of isolating you know, you meet so many people. I don't want to mis. I don't want to characterize everybody in that in that light. Um, I'm just giving you some of the experiences and some of the stories of some of the people that I met along the way. Like I said, for the most part, most of the people that are homeless, they're dealing with a mental health issue, and they're also dealing with the substance abuse issue. And that in tandem makes it very hard for them to hold on to a job, mm-hmm. and then that makes it hard for them to to get you know, to have housing. And so it's this vicious cycle. Uh, right now in the, in the homeless community or the homeless prevention community, there's what is called the Housing First program where they realize when you can get somebody in a stable environment, that's when they can really work on their issues. 
they can receive therapy, they can receive medication if that's what they need. Um, you know, they can also start working again because they have that stability of a house. Uh, what they realize is that they were kind of holding that out as the carrot for a long, long time. And they would say, well, if you're good, if, you're, if you go through X, Y, Z steps, then we'll help you get housing. But that really wasn't helping. Uh, so they've gone to this Housing First initiative. But yeah, I mean, most of the people that you meet, they're very self-sufficient. And a lot of them actually want to be there. It's a really hard mentality to understand, but a lot of them do want to be there because they just feel isolated. No, oddly, I've never, ever heard anyone put it like that. Honestly, it's, it's, that's a really interesting thought. But for some reason, it makes a little more sense than, I don't know, some other explanations I might have heard. Like you mentioned, them being survivalists, them feeling isolated. People don't understand them. They're, they're okay on their own. They're too proud to ask for help. That's a lot of, a lot of baggage that I could see could lead to that. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, I interviewed Jim a lot, Jim Street, whom I mentioned, the Vietnam veteran who was the outreach outreach coordinator for the VA Medical Center in Washington, D.C. And he just recently retired a few years ago. But Jim told me some absolutely heartbreaking stories. But one of the neatest things, and I'll share this with you, I was hosting a screening of the documentary at my hometown, which is Williamsport, Pennsylvania. It's about four hours away from D.C. And I invited Jim and his girlfriend, Janie, to come attend the screening as my special guests. And after the screening, we hosted a discussion in which Jim and I were sharing a lot of our research, a lot of his stories. And then we opened it up to questions and answers with the audience. And after everybody had asked questions, I mean, we were going strong. The, actually, the community arts center was basically kind of signaling us to, to wrap it up. But one man stood up at the back of the theater and he said, Mr. Street, he said, I know that you gave your card to every person you met. And I know that you were at McPherson Square on Fridays at three o'clock like clockwork. I know this, sir, because you gave me your card because I was there one time. And so he had an opportunity to meet a homeless veteran that he had helped 20 years ago. Wow. Four hours away in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, a man who, you know, had completely had been rehabilitated and was a thriving member of the community and stood up in the theater to say, thank you. That's pretty it was, powerful. It was pretty powerful. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of people just have a lot of things that they need to work on and, and, you know, it, it takes a special you know, person has a special time to be able to say, this is the help I need. Mm-hmm. It is powerful. And it is something often misunderstood. And, and I definitely appreciate, and I'm sure our listeners will, you helping us understand this problem and what happens to many of our soldiers when they return. So again, thanks for sharing all that with us. I wanted to end the interview on some three questions that we are asking our guests. We've been doing this for about 10 episodes now. So the first one I had for you is what is the last great book that you read? The last great book I read, I'm going to say is The Hungering Dark by Frederick Buechner. We're going to have to look into that one. That's a new one for me. I I thought I heard of most of them, but never, never got that one. You know, there's, well, there is a quote from that book uh, that I actually had, um, so every chapter of my book, Beyond the Wall, um, I start with a quote, um, you know, from from another source. Mm-hmm. And 
I found this quote, and I'll share it with you and your, your listeners because I think it's really powerful. And it's, it starts like this. The life I touch for good or ill will touch another, and that in turn another, until who knows where the trembling stops or in what far place my touch will be felt. And so I would always close my discussions with this quote, and I realized that I never actually read the book from which I was quoting. I just love that quote so much. And so just this past uh, couple weeks ago, I ordered it and I read it. And it's an amazing book. It's a spiritual-based uh, book. Mr. Beekner is a New England poet um, and a preacher. And so it is really about almost what we started this, this interview with was how do we go forth into, into the world knowing our own face and what trace will we leave? Oh, I love that. I'm definitely going to have to check that out now. So the second question I have for you is what application, tool, or process have you been using recently that has made your life better? I'm going to do a shameless plug here uh-huh. and say that it's my own. <laughs> um, I, uh, I invented a, um, an application for authors to be able to sign their eBooks digitally. And so it's actually in the patent process. It's not been awarded yet. They're still uh, going through that review period. Um, but I basically will sign my eBook for veterans and, and friends and families. Um, and that's actually, it came up because people said, hey, you know, um, I'd love for you to sign my, your book for my dad. He's a Vietnam veteran. I just got him a Kindle for Christmas, but I'd also like for you to sign it. So, you know, will you send us a physical copy too? Right. Um, so, yeah. So that's the application I came up with. It's, it's called Inscribed Media, but that makes my life a lot easier. That's actually a really cool idea. I like that, especially how we, you know, a lot of people in the, you know, new media and digital space deal with ebooks. So I think that could be useful. I was going to say, so you just mean present day. No, man. I mean like non-hardcover books. Leave me alone. (laughs) The last thing I have for you is what advice do you have for the intellectually curious? For the intellectually curious? um, I'm going to expand that. I'm going to say for everybody. I honestly think it's, you have to do your own research. You have to do your own homework. I think that uh, in today's day and age, with all the technology, we have so much information at our fingertips, yet at the same time, I think we all get a little bit lazy and we let other people kind of give us our tidbits, if you will. And so I've learned to really do my own research and to do my own homework uh, because I really want to understand things uh, as innately as I possibly can. And then with that is go your path, be your person. Uh, and you just, you just have to have that faith and you just have to walk that walk because that's when life really becomes beautiful. Well, that's perfect. And that is some great advice, especially for all the things we've, we've talked about on the show and trying to do that ourselves and encourage others to do that. So Olivia, thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate it. Your book, Beyond the Wall, The Journey Home. It's incredible. We'll link to it up on our website at smartpeoplepodcast.com. And just really want to say thank you. Is there anywhere else that our listeners could go learn more about you and the multiple projects that you're working on? Yes, and thank you both for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, listeners can, can go on to my website. It's oliviatagliferi.com. Uh, they can also find me on Twitter at author Olivia. Um, and I, I guess you could just do a Google. That's probably the easiest way to pull things up as well. That's the, that's the new age stuff we're talking about. You know, that's probably the best answer. I want, from now on, if I'm ever on one of the, a show like this or something and somebody asks me, I'm going to say, just Google my name, man. And welcome <laughs> to the, you know, 21st century. All right, Olivia, thanks again so much and, uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. 
Thank you guys for sticking around. And again, thank you so much for downloading this show on a weekly basis, tweeting us, messaging us on Facebook, leaving us reviews on iTunes, all the cool stuff that you guys do. We really do appreciate it. I think we're in the top 50 or so, 100 of education all week. It goes all over the place, man. It's crazy. I love seeing us out there. Hopefully we can make that just an easy thing for people to find the show download it learn more about cool stuff tell one friend tell a friend tell one friend about the show that's all that's all we need i listened to olivia mention the thing about doing the one good deed and it keeps going going your one good deed could be tell somebody about smart people podcast might keep going we are just shedding knowledge on the world that sounded like we are knowledge on the world good at least i don't have to do any additional editing to get this episode out tonight don't worry don't worry all <laughs> thanks right, for guys. listening connect on smartpeoplepodcast.com subscribe on itunes see you next week <laughs>